The following is a Barrett Sports Media production. Every sports media star has a story. From the highs... We are number one. We just grabbed every key demographic. <laughs> to the lows. You're fire! The path to success is always different. To help you learn more about the industry's top broadcasters, Barrett Sports Media brings you the Sports Talkers Podcast. Now, here's your host, Stephen Strom. All right, we're off and running, Sports Talkers Podcast. Stephen Strom here. Happy Thursday. Good morning, good afternoon, good night. Whenever you may be listening, Michael Kay has been the voice of the Yankees since 1992. He joins us today, started on the Yes Network or on TV in 2001. He's also the host of the Michael Kay Show on ESPN New York, 98.7. Weekdays, 3 p.m. to 7 p.m. I grew up on him. Really cool. Really cool interview and opportunity to have him on today. We get into a plethora of things. We talk about his professional career and his start to his broadcast career. It wasn't in broadcast. It was in journalism at the New York Post as a clerk. It's crazy how everyone starts somewhere, even the guys that you think never did anything like that. They did start somewhere, whether it's a clerk, whether it's a whatever it may be. Uh, really interesting stuff with Michael. We also get into a little Chris Maddow Russo, a little Mike Francesa, Stephen A. Smith mentioned as well, and why him and CC Sabathia do not speak to each other anymore. So stick with us here. Michael is going to join us in just a few seconds. Make sure to rate, subscribe, and review the Sports Talkers podcast. Check every other podcast on the network out on BarrettSportsMedia.com. And without further ado, here is Michael K. I have to start here before we get into anything. My dad's from Minnesota, born in New Jersey, so I took on all, unfortunately, of his sports teams. What is it about the Yankees and the Twins? Why do you think there has been this dominance over the Twins for this amount of time? It, it doesn't It doesn't make sense. I wish I had an excuse for it. I'm sure that the Twins wish they had an excuse they would fix it because it's different rosters. And to have that kind of dominance against a team, that's good because they've even dominated them in the postseason. It just doesn't, it doesn't make sense. And I think sometimes jinxes, so to speak, become a little bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy because the Red Sox, you know, were owned by the Yankees since 1918. Obviously, all the the, the rosters changed, the players changed, but each year the new roster is reminded of what the old teams did, and I think it, it gets into the head a little bit. And so much of, of sports is mental. It has to be that. That's the only thing I can figure <laughs> out because the Twins should be able to win a couple of games against the Yankees. Michael, you started your professional career with the New York Post in 1982 as a general assignment writer. I guess describe a 21-year-old Michael Kay trying to climb the ladder mindset-wise and, and what you were doing each and every day. Well, you know, as a nine-year-old, what I wanted to do was be the Yankee announcer. Uh, but I was born in the South Bronx, and the South Bronx was in my voice, and, you know, you could hear it. Uh, you're probably too young, but, you know, think about Welcome Back Cotter and Vinnie Barbarino, it, it was that sort of voice with Dems and Does and stuff like that. So I worked for the student radio station at Fordham, but I also was the sports editor of, of the newspaper there. Uh, and when I got out of school, the one job that was available to me uh, was as a clerk at the New York Post. Uh, so I took that, filing pictures, getting people lunch, and then writing on my own time just to get my byline in the paper. And then eventually I was promoted. And you know, I knew that if I wanted to be a broadcaster, I'd have to go to a small town somewhere in the middle of the country and work my way back. And I just know myself. I have the utmost respect for people that could do that. I would not have been able to do that. Mm. I would not have had the uh, stick to So, And why I, not? Why is that? 
really close with my family. I mean, I, I guess that, you know, when you look at all the jobs I've had, that I'm obviously a hard worker, but I just didn't think I'd be able to do that. I mean, I didn't even go away to college. You know, I went to Fordham. So everything was within the confines of the Bronx. So I couldn't mm. see, you know, moving to Oshkosh, Wisconsin and being able to survive. Uh, so then I, I just wrote after a while I got promoted from a clerk at the post and I became a writer. Uh, and then I started to say, well, maybe I could just be the Yankee uh, beat writer. Mm. And I worked my way up to that. At first I was a college basketball writer and then I covered the New Jersey net, the then New Jersey nets. And then I got promoted to the Yankee beat and I was on that for a couple of years and, uh, got promoted, uh, not didn't got stolen by the daily news. Uh, so they made me an offer and I moved to the Daily News for two years. So in all, I was a Yankee beat writer for five. And I, I just figured that that was going to be it. Mm. Uh, but during that time when I was a beat writer, I ended up always being the rain delay guest on radio. And it's still in the back there of my go. mind. I said, let me be let me be somebody that they, they look at as an expert. Uh, also, around that time, the MSG network got the rights to the Yankees. And I came up with the idea of uh, what I call tomorrow's news today. Because I pitched them on the idea. I said, listen, the electronic media is immediate. And the print media is a day behind. This was before Twitter. Mm -hmm. I said, so why don't you let me go in the clubhouse after a game, find out what's going on, have the reasons why people actually are doing the things that they're doing, and then come out and tell Al Troutwig on the post-game show exactly what was going on. So they, they, they said, that's cool. And I also kept the job at the news. And then the, the, the radio job opened up. And after I'd been a rain delay guest for so long, I was one of like 5,000 applicants for that with John Sterling. And I ended up getting it. So this was, I mean, this was a strategic and this is, and I think this is the first point I want to get into broadcast advice. You have to kind of create your own path as far as, okay, I want to get here. What can I do to get there creatively? And was that kind of your uh, mentality through this? Steven, I wish I could tell you I was that clever. I was just a hard worker. <laughs> and like it, it was always in the back of my mind, get on the air, get on the air, get on yeah. the air. And I'm, what I always tell kids, get on the air no matter how you get on the air, no matter what, what it is, you know, airtime is the most important thing. So I just figured, you know, being the rain delay guest, at least I would be in people's minds. Sure. You know, I guess that was like the back, the back channel way. But I, I feel so awkward when young people ask me, well, what advice would you give? That the the route I took is so unusual, you know. I don't know if anybody could take that route again. I'm not sure. You know, you have to create as you so put it put it so well. You have to create your way, and each each way is individual and different than my way or your way. But everybody wants you know the same thing. They just find different ways to get there. All right, I I wanna I want you to take us through your approach when you're a, a voice of the team of specifically the team's network and let's say the team is struggling and I've always felt like you've done a really good job of this. Um, you're in the clubhouse every day. How do you maintain that professionalism, possibly calling guys out, but also not burn a bridge? And do you have an example of maybe having to learn that the hard way? It's hard. It's, it's, it's very, very difficult. And the thing that makes it the most difficult, Stephen, is the talk show. Because, you know, when I'm doing play-by-play, -play, it's the analyst's job to really analyze and criticize and things like that. Opinions, they yep. give me the freedom to, you know, say things here and there, but I'm not opining inning after inning. That's really not my job. That's not my lane during the broadcast. But for four hours a day before the game, I'm sometimes ripping them. Now, I'm fortunate that the Yankees are very, very good, so there's not that much time to really rip Did them Did that all. take time? Or did you feel, when did you start to really feel comfortable doing that? 
ripping. Yeah, like just being. Well, you know, I I had the I had the the, the fortune uh, of doing the radio with John Sterling for ten years, so I didn't have uh, the talk show. The talk show, be, you know, became a thing after I got off the radio and got the TV gig in two thousand and two. Um, I, I I've always kind of been honest. I, I find it hard to be phony, so I just say what I think. And sometimes you are walking a tightrope. You know, this past postseason, you know, a lot of things to criticize with the Yankees. And, you know, they also put me on the post-game show because we're not doing the games during that time. And I was critical, and I was very critical on the air as well. And I'm sure that, you know, the Yankees um, were not thrilled with it, you know, because, it, you know, if you if you work at a pizza store and you stand outside the pizza store and say how bad the pizza is, the owner doesn't really like it. Right. But I, I give credit to the Steinbrenner family, starting with George Steinbrenner and Al Hal Steinbrenner. They, I think they've realized that if I'm honest and I'm bringing fans the truth, they're going to believe me and they're going to trust me. So when I tell them good things, they're not going to think about it as putting lipstick on a pig. They're going to think, wow, those are really good things. And if I tell them bad things, well, that's the price you pay in order for people to trust you. And, you know, they've never really come down on me. And I've, I, there, there have been times that I have been critical. But again, I think since 1992, when I became a broadcaster, I think they haven't made the playoffs only four times. So, I mean, I've had quite an unbelievable uh, run of fortune with the team I broadcasted. Any specific uh, examples of uh, heated exchanges within a player or a manager that you care to share? Um, well, the one thing that stands out to me, and to this point, I still don't even know why it is. Um, you know, CC Sabathia signed with the Yankees, and he's he's a great guy. And there was a year in the middle of his first contract when he was injured, so he watched a lot of the games on TV, and I think that was also a year that the Yankees didn't play well. So we were critical of them on the broadcast. And uh, he didn't like that, you know, he, he because he'd come from Milwaukee and Cleveland, where that's not really how they roll. Um, you know, we are not cheerleaders on the Yankee broadcast. We never have been. And New York doesn't accept it. No, they the don't. For the Rangers or the Mets. I mean, Gary is very critical of the Mets at time. And, uh, you know, uh, you know I, I just say what's the truth. I'm not trying to, like, paint it in a positive light. I'm just trying to do the truth. And, um, you know, CeCe just – you know, for most of his career after that, to this day, doesn't talk with me. Mm. So that's that's a little awkward. And and it's also a little dangerous because, you know, CC was a team leader. You know, people listen to him. I mean, mm. one of the reasons that I was able to be so trusted in the Yankee clubhouse goes to back to when I was a writer. Don Mattingly really took a liking to me. And Don Mattingly was the unofficial and official leader of that team. Yep. And whenever new people would come to to the Yankees, you know, the writers would be in the clubhouse and he would go out of his way to say, see that guy, trust him. That goes a long way. <laughs> oh, my God. It was like it was like a gift from the journalism gods to have Mattingly be the guy vouch for you. And and then, you know, you fast forward about 20 years and, you know, CeCe's probably doing the opposite of that. It hasn't hurt me, but um, it, it's distressing because, uh, you know, I've asked him plenty of times what exactly you know was wrong. No, nothing's wrong. Nothing's wrong. But, but there's know, just a yeah. coldness there. Yep. And that that's a little disappointing. You know, as a younger broadcaster, I'm going to listen to this. And uh, I did a game at FIU on Sunday. I'm going to re-listen to that to see if I can figure out what I can improve on it. At this point in your career, I guess, what do you do to continue to grow and evolve as a broadcaster? You know, it's funny because I, I, I despise it. I think it's the cesspool of life. But I, I do, after games, sometimes read um, Twitter. And, you know, the mentions 
and as much as much um, animus as there is, and filth and and just really unhappiness there, there are some people that make points that you might be going into areas where you're repeating a certain phrase a lot, and they're not trying to help you, but they'll make fun <laughs> of the fact where they go, "Wow, Kay said this. You know, let's play a drinking game every time okay, Kay yeah. says that." And then I go, "Good help." Yeah. Okay, I'll, I'm I'm gonna not do that anymore. So. Uh, I don't have the time to sit back and watch the whole game. You know, when I get home from the game, we're usually in a replay on yes. I might put it on and listen to certain calls. But, you know, at your stage in your career, you want to see every little little thing. I used to do that on the radio a lot. Um, but um, not, I don't do it as much anymore where I'm self-evaluating other than I'm seeing what other people write um, on on social media. I don't I don't look at, at – um, radio and TV columnists because I think they have an agenda. Mm. Uh, and, and I'm sure that some people do as well on, on social media, but you can glean some positive stuff out of there that you can say, okay, maybe I'm falling into this trap. Maybe I'm doing this too often. And that that's helpful at times. A couple more left here with Michael K. Great spot with him. Uh, what are some of the mistakes that you see in younger broadcasters that we all can work on? Or is it just contextual to the person? Well, it's probably more of the latter, contextual for the person. But one, one thing I do see, and I haven't seen it with you, is um, you know, young broadcasters come with an agenda. Not an agenda in a bad way, but they have their questions that the they want to ask. Yeah, And you can just see that they're not listening to what the subject is saying. And uh, that's unfortunate because I could say something just outrageous right now. And if you don't follow up on it, it's lost in the ether. And another thing that I've noticed, and there's some veteran guys that do it too, and guys that are really like legends in the business. You know, when I do my, you know, the talk show, the the interview show center stage on Yes, I'm just the guy who wants to get the most out of the guests. I don't Mm. want to be the star. And I just see a lot that a lot of youngsters and, again, some veterans, their questions are so long, and they're just trying to show – the subject how much i know and how much research i've done i never do that and it, and it and it does bother me and i never say anything unless somebody asks me specifically well, well you know what what advice would you give me well the advice i would give you is listen to the answer because your next question could come off that not off the sheet in front of you and uh you're not the star you're just the person who's asking the questions of the star you want to make the guest feel comfortable and get the most information out of them can you expand on that real quick as far as the art of interviewing and you know trying to get the most content from that individual other than not having a script and really just listening? Um, what are some of the other things that you feel like you've gotten your best interviews when you've done this? Well, when I started doing Center Stage and we've done like 250 shows. Love the one stage. with Stephen A. <laughs> that was unbelievable. And I love the, um, you know, my favorite ones, you know, Larry David, because I'm just... I think that when you interview anybody, there has to be an innate curiosity. And even if the subject is booked and you don't really feel strongly about it, you've got to get a curiosity about their life. Why did they get to this point? How did they get to this point? And uh, I try to do, somebody once told me a long time ago, you should never ask a question that you don't really know the answer to. You should do so much preparation that you know the answer to the questions. And then by that, you might get, an answer that you did not know. Mm. So yeah, you're going to set him up with different, he or her up with different questions. And um, the, you could have a script like on center stage, we had all, all the segments, like all the questions written out 
my producer and I would sit down and say, well, this is what we want to do in this segment. This is what we want to do in that. But just listen, and they might take you off on a road that you just go off the script and you never come back. The and art of improv. Too. Yep. That's fine. Total improv because then you get your best stuff. I mean, I remember we did um, the Mike Tyson interview on Center Stage, and he was like kind of out of control. <laughs> in what ways? Like I, in many, in many, many ways, he just, you know, he was going here and there. And I think he was a little stoned as well. <laughs> and he just, you know, I, I put down the cards for the most part. And I just, I just free flowed with him. And then I found out a couple of years later that after that interview ad aired, you know, Spike Lee called him and said, you see what that you just did on TV on Yes? He goes, yeah, he goes, that's a Broadway show. So they got the Broadway show that Tyson did for like a year or so just from watching center stage, you know, the honesty, you just want people to be honest. And, you know, I always wish that, you know, we, we joke about it, me and the, the bosses of yes, that we could start center stage in the middle rather than the beginning. Cause yeah. you can actually see if you watch the shows, they get more comfortable. Yep. They know it's not a got, gotcha show. And then by the, the, the 20 minute mark of the hour show, they're just sitting back and they're not even realize they're being interviewed. They're you just BSing. Get, yep. Just BSing. Just, just like they're in a conversation. They're not in an inquisition. And that would be my biggest thing I would tell. Don't make it an inquisition. You're not Mike Wallace. It's not 60 minutes. Make it a conversation. And usually in conversations, good things come out of it. I want to swing to the overall media circuit right now because Chris Mad Dog Russo, someone really close with, to me, I, I interned for him. I know you guys have a really good relationship and, and just let's just talk about the, the radio environment in New York. It's, it's really, uh, it's a really good one. And, and I know that with Francesa and you and Russo, it's like this triangle. Why do you think that Chris has had this like second career uh, and, and Mike Francesa kind of has uh, exited the, the sports radio world? I think Chris, you know, evolved and grew. And he's so distinctive, Stephen. I mean, there's nobody like him. And I guess you could say there's nobody like Mike either. And I can't speak to why Mike doesn't have a radio gig. Maybe he doesn't want to. I think he's a little older than Chris as well. Um, and toward the end, it just seemed like he'd been there and done that and got bored. And I think it came across a little bit. You know, he's an iconic guy. You know, we had our, we had our thing. Are you guys good now? Um, we're not great. I mean, he's not coming over to my house for dinner. But we we never really had anything, you know, uh, any animosity toward each other. He's just rude, you know. When we were when we were battling him, uh, when Don and I were battling him on the radio show, and one of the great thrills of my life was beating him before he retired. I I, I just knew the clock was running, and we had a we had to win that one. But Chris just has an energy about him that I, I don't think that Mike held. You know, Mike, when, when Mike and Chris were together, I think that's as, that's as good as sports radio could be. And then when they separated, I don't think either of them was as good as they were together. But I think Correct. Chris has carved out a niche where there's nobody like him. There's just, there's just absolutely nobody like Chris Russo. And as long as he keeps that energy up and wants to do it, I think he's always going to have a big job in this business. And him and Stephen A, like you would think sometimes, you know, opposites maybe attract in radio, but they both are similar. And people that, when that first started, by the way, and they're like, oh, Chris is trying to act like Stephen A. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Chris was Stephen A before Stephen A was Stephen A. Yeah, they're, they're really good together. And, you know, I never knew that, and I'm, I'm close with Stephen A as well as close with Chris, and I never knew that Stephen A had such an admiration for Chris. He really, really likes him. I mean, for him to turn over that realist, I mean, that's, 
That's important real estate on ESPN. Yes, it is. And to include Chris and go, okay, this day is yours. And, you know, Stephen A is very pragmatic. He knows what works. He knows what gets ratings. And Chris brings in numbers. And, you know, ever since Chris went to first take, the numbers are up, especially on Wednesday. So uh, it's a pretty good match. I mean, sometimes they scream so much you can't hear exactly what they're saying. <laughs> but it is very entertaining. All right, Michael K., everyone. Make sure to follow him on Twitter at RealMichael. Okay, that was a really fun spot and a special one for me. I grew up in New Jersey, so just watching him on Yes Network and hearing him on the radio, it's the first time I've ever met him. So to be able to interview him and to get such good, honest, transparent answers is, is always a great thing and learning something as well. It's always what I want to do here with these podcasts. Make sure you're learning something every single time you turn this on, um, whether it's media, whether it's personal, whatever it may be. And, and I took away a lot uh, from Michael. So thanks everyone for listening. We will talk to you next Thursday here. We are just flying through the month of November. Thanksgiving is on the horizon. And as always, make sure to check out everything else on BarrettSportsMedia.com, the articles, the podcast, and we will talk to you next Thursday here on the Sports Talkers podcast. Thank you for listening to the Sports Talkers podcast with Stephen Strong. A reminder that each episode can be found on iTunes, Spotify, and most podcasting platforms. To stay up to date on future episodes, visit BarrettSportsMedia.com.